0: And then about 25 percent, 30 percent of the people are doing things that not only no one wants, but no one knows about Mm -hmm. and are actually against the goals of the organization.
1: This is the Happen to Your Career podcast with Scott Anthony Barlow. We help you stop doing work that doesn't fit you, figure out what does, and make it happen. We help
2: you define the work that's unapologetically you, and then go get it.
1: If you're ready to make a change,
2: keep listening. Here's Scott. Here's Scott. Here's Scott.
1: What if you can become more effective and more fulfilled in your work at the same time? Turns out it's far from impossible. Happy teams.
0: Not only are you a better person if you have happy teams in your organization, but they
1: do more stuff, higher quality, and are psyched to come to work. That's JJ Sutherland, CEO of Scrum Incorporated. JJ's father, Jeff, came up with a Scrum framework back in the early 90s. Now, the Scrum framework helps teams work together and encourages teams to learn through experiences, helps them self organize while working on a problem, and it helps them reflect on their wins and losses to continuously improve. It's most frequently used by software development teams, but its principles and lessons can be applied to virtually any team. In fact, we've used a variation of the Scrum Fray work on our team, but we've started to change the way that we run our business based on this conversation that Scott had with JJ. Now, in this conversation, you're going to hear how changing the way you view your work will increase your happiness and enable you to do twice the work in half the time.
2: Tell me a little bit about where your career began long before, long before Scrum, long before anything else. Tell me a bit about where your career started out.
0: So my career began during college when I got a job at WBUR, which is the public radio station in Boston. And I was there for a while. I did a talk show there. I was a producer, not on air, and a bunch of other things, covered a couple of elections, And then I left there and went to WNYC in New York to produce a program called On the Media. Yeah. And I was there for a couple of years. And then NPR recruited me to come down and launch some new shows in DC where NPR is headquartered. And then um, 9-11 happened. So they wanted to build a secondary headquarters in California. So I went out to California and set that up. And then the Iraq war happened. You know, I had a pretty good job in Santa Monica, but I decided that as a journalist, that's what I wanted to do is cover that.
2: What made you decide that that was what you wanted to do as a journalist? I'm curious. A
0: couple of reasons. One, it's sort of, it was—it had always been my dream to be a work correspondent. You know, that's sort of, you know, sort of one of the things that since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, the glamour, is all, which I discovered is not there. Um,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. But now I'm super curious about when you you were a kid, what were some of the events that led you down the path of saying, Oh,
0: Oh, uh, my uncle was a journalist in public radio. And then, you know, the year of living dangerously, this movie with, I think it was Richard Gere in it about coverage of the Indonesian revolution takeover by the military, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And it was just romantic. And there's a love story and, you know, getting this story out. And there's, you know, I don't know why, but I've always been attracted to journalism and journalism in crisis zones is also one of the highest forms of the craft Mm. because it's hard to do. Yeah. And I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. It's sort of why I left Boston for New York is I was a player in Boston and I decided, you know what? I don't want to be a player in Boston. I want to be a player in New York city. And that's going to give me the competition that I want because that's where the competition is. Then NPR and then it was, you know, I did a bunch of stuff at NPR and then it was like, I want to go that. So in 2004, I started to go to Iraq for about six months a year, so I was a co-Baghdad bureau chief until 2011 when I left NPR. So I spent about six months a year in Iraq and six months a year back home, and I covered Iraq, the Arab Spring, Hezbollah-Israeli conflict, in what was that? 2006, 2006, yeah, 2006, I guess, and then there was the London bombings in 2007, then uh, Fukushima in 2011. And Libya, also in 2011, covered all of those.
2: So I heard you say that it was not like the movie with Richard Gere in many ways. What were some of the biggest differences between what you perceived it would be and what it actually is?
0: I have this sort of quip that I use. Yeah. That is when people ask me what war is like. And it's incredibly scary and terrifyingly loud. It is your, I was anyway, I was afraid all the time. Which I think was, you know, understanding you're in the midst of a conflict. Yeah. And this conflict, unlike wars in the past, the journalists were targets of uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. And so that was scary. You know, people were getting kidnapped, pulled out of their houses, had their heads chopped off. Or then if you're with the American military, you're driving down the road. <laughs> this guy driving down this road from, uh, oh, where is that? I was going to Taji. It's from Baghdad to Taji, uh-huh. up this highway. And the guy goes, yeah, we had nine EEDs last night. They'll probably used them all up wow <laughs> so like, wow okay okay yeah you know getting shot at and all it's yeah it's terrifying and it is also incredibly boring because you're waiting a lot of the time for stuff to happen so and when stuff does it's fast and so and it was i mean the conditions in iraq you know were you know we we're living in a house with armed guards behind windows with you know sandbags Like every time we went out, we had to have a plan for how we're going to do it, you know, to avoid capture. So, and it was incredibly uh, depressing. People were dying. A lot of them for no reason. Yeah. And I kept on doing it because I wanted the American people to know what was going on in their name. And it was pretty horrific. And I felt an obligation to the American people to let them know.
2: I can't find the quite right words. First of all, it's, (laughs) it's horrific in many senses of the word the boring the horrifying the terrifying all of those things sound very very horrific i suppose is is the right word however it's so interesting that word obligation i found myself at many points in time during my career during some of the hardest areas and i don't want to compare those to war in any way whatsoever because uh, i think even my hardest areas still are vastly different than than war however things are still hard <laughs> things are still sure things are still hard and i think in different ways for for different people certainly but that obligation word is really really interesting to me just because i think that sometimes that is w- the obligation and often the sense of maybe purpose or other things that can come from it what what was it about that obligation that kept you in that area
0: for so long and when i say area i'm talking about you know continuing to cover journalists are one of the only professions mentioned in the constitution for freedom of the press and as such we have both incredible freedom and able to you know broadcast to millions of people but from my point of view that comes with an obligation to the republic that i believe the united states is served by an independent free journalism i think that that is really important for our republic and I feel that. And I felt then that the Bush administration had decided to go to war on false pretenses. They, the behavior and how the U.S. forces were there, well, not all of them, certainly, and I have good friends, but, you know, horrible things happen. They do in war. I mean, they just do. And I felt, and it, was not, it wasn't my place to say it was bad or it was horrible. That's what I did, Never said that then. What I, was my place to say is what I had to say was, this is what happened today. Mm-hmm. Just that. Just the facts. This is what happened today. Here's the impact it had on people's lives. And Americans are involved. Al-Qaeda is involved. Iran is involved. Shia militias are involved. There's no good guys here. So, I mean, yeah, American forces on the whole were good people, but sometimes they weren't.
2: So then what I'm very curious about is what caused you to... Transition away from that because you know if we fast forward many years later, like that is not at all what you're doing at this right. point. No, not even close. <laughs> However, what 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 took place between
0: there and here? So two things. This was 2009. My editor at the time, I was covering. I was back in the states. I was covering the Pentagon. Yeah. My editor said, "You know, we've done all the stories about the strategy and the troops and about the Iraqis, but there were like a hundred attacks a day in Baghdad alone, like 2006, 2007." And they're like, and he said. What happens to all this stuff? What happens to all the blown-up Humvees? I said, I don't know. Let me go find out. And they end up at the Red River Army Depot in Texarkana, Texas. You ever been to East Texas? I have. And what's in East Texas? Not not much, (laughs) as far as I can tell. A whole lot of not much. Passing through. But there is this Army Depot, and it's got a few thousand people, and there's only one person in uniform, just the colonel in charge, everyone else is civilian, unionized workforce, you know, classic. And when the war kicked off in 2003, they could fix three Humvees a week. And the Pentagon, obviously, 100 tax a day, three Humvees a week ain't going to cut it. So the Pentagon was actually going to shut it down, outsource it to Oshkosh. And the colonel in charge didn't want that to happen. I mean, this is thousands of jobs in a place where there aren't a lot of jobs. So he went to Ford and GM and said, well, how do you do it? And they introduced him to what's called a lean production line, which you, if you've never seen one, Google it. They're amazing. All comes originally out of the Toyota production system. It's like the parts show up just in time, just when the workers need it. They're constantly looking for how do they make the line go faster. They're constantly trying to improve. And over a couple of years, they went from three a week to more than 40 a day. Wow. And they didn't change any of the people. All they changed was how they were working. And I thought that was pretty amazing. I went to the motel that night and I called my dad. Uh, Jeff Sutherland, who invented Scrum back in 94, 93, and said, you know, this total process improvement thing you've been going on about for decades, maybe you're onto something, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so and so, I went back to Iraq and I didn't... Hold on, hold on. Back up. I want to know what that conversation was like. <laughs> <laughs> my, my father's pretty... Fl- your da- well, your dad's been talking about this stuff, probably very excitedly for, I'm guessing... <laughs> he was much more like... Yeah, he's one of the more phlegmatic people I know. Yeah. So, of course, of course you did. Now you finally realized <laughs> what we're talking about. <laughs> this thing, all right. So I went and I took a Scrum Master course from him. And then I went back to Baghdad and did a few things, that, you know, sort of Scrum things. I could put up a Scrum board so we knew where everything was. We had a daily stand-up, you know, those kind of things. But I didn't really do all of Scrum. That wasn't until 2011, when the Arab Spring kicked off in January of that year and when the Arab Spring kicked off, I think it was a Friday and my job then because I wasn't at the Baghdad Bureau was if something, you know, exploded or went, went crazy and the world was to you know, grab a go bag and go. And again, I was being a producer, not, I was not being a correspondent. I wasn't feeling that role during the Arab Spring. It was a Friday, and so they flew in the Jerusalem correspondent to Cairo to help the Cairo correspondent cover it, but we weren't sure how big it was going to get, so we didn't send anybody else right away. And this might surprise you, but broadcast correspondents have egos, and they don't play well together sometimes. (laughs) So they spent the weekend fighting, and they're blowing deadlines and, you know, not getting stuff done. And so they called me on Sunday, and they said, hey, we're going to fly you into Cairo. Hey, here's the situation. Fix that situation. And we're sending in two or three more correspondents. So make sure everyone works together well. I got there and as the senior producer in charge on the ground, I had no power. No one reported to me. My job was just to make stuff happen, Mm -hmm. make it easy. So I was sitting in baggage claim in the Cairo airport, middle of the night. They had a a dusted on curfew so I couldn't leave until like 8 a.m. It was like two in the morning. And I was thinking about it. And I said, you know, the only way I think I can do this is with Scrum. But I can't use any of the words because they will just laugh me out of the room say, some sort of management fad. So all I did is, you know, I, got, I went to the hotel room that we got looking over Trier Square and I just took out Post-its and uh, started putting, hey, what's the most important thing we have to do today? All right, that's, okay, went From went Trier Square and let's just go down the list and then um, make all the work visible. And it was amazing. I, within a number of days, this fractious group of individuals have become a team and they're working together as a team. And so that really blew my mind. You know, we had, we were doing 12 hour sprints because we had a morning show and an evening show. And there's something called the sprint retrospective, which in Scrum is how, is where the continuous improvement comes in. Mm-hmm. And so we do it twice a day. Like, hey, what went well? What, you know, what didn't go well? What's, you know, getting in our way? and slowing us down. It could be anything like, oh, you know, the satellite phone needs a better hit. Or one of the correspondents, Corey Flintoff, got picked up by the secret police. So I had to get him out of jail. No one teaches you how to do that. That <laughs> was a learning experience.
2: <laughs> they don't teach that in university?
0: <laughs> <laughs> no. So weird. We did that and it was just a remarkable experience. I mean, that, was, that story was a remarkable experience. That was a great one to cover. Then Libya happened and Libya was just chaos. There was no... Institutions, because Gaddafi had you know made sure there was nothing, there was no dental association, no law association, no unions, no. So that there is the only institution was his personal power. And so when when he died, the whole thing fell apart. And you go to places, there's some guy with former taxi driver with you know a rocket launcher in his shoulder, and uh, it was just crazy. And I think it was the second time I went there. And so in Benghazi, there was this hotel, and in the hotel was like where all the foreign journalists stayed. And every day around four o'clock, the good citizens of Benghazi would march in front of the hotel and they'd fire off all the weapons they looted from the military armories, which, you know, like ones I hadn't even seen, and apparently not realizing that what goes up must come down. Like I saw people arguing with grenades over a parking spot at one point. Wow! But so they're going around and they're shooting in the air and I'm in my hotel room working on a script or something and a bullet goes through the window and all I was was annoyed. I wasn't afraid. I was just annoyed because I was trying to get shit done. And a very good friend of mine had said, JJ, if you're ever not afraid, you've been there too long, get out. And so that's what I did. It was definitely, you know, I ended up in um, on a UN flight, ended up in Malta, where I've never been to before. And I just had, had to walk around for a few days thinking, okay, what am I going to do next with my life? This career is over. And I get back to DC eventually. And I'm talking to my dad, I'm thinking about writing a book and I go to this guy, Howard Yoon, he's a literary agent. And I said, yeah, I want to write a book and I could write this book on war, this book on the Middle East about Fukushima or, you know, or, you know, my dad does this thing called Scrum. And Howard looked at me and said, JJ, you want to leave NPR? I said, yeah, I do. He says, write the Scrum book. And so I spent the next couple of years doing that, the, our first book and capturing my father's stories and how all this came about and what all of it means was really important to me as well as I, because I think that we oftentimes let knowledge like that vanish.
2: Yeah, that's, that's actually fascinating to me, partially because I can't tell you the number of people I've been in conversation with over probably the last 15 years or so, where I've heard them say something to the effect of, man, I would love to spend time and capture my parents' or grandparents' stories. And you've, (laughs) in very many ways, the unique opportunity to do that, but for an even greater purpose, I would say. First of all, what was just that aspect like of it? And why
0: was that so important to you in particular? It was odd. It was a gift, I think, to get to know my father as an adult, you know, for 25 years. I hadn't really, you know, been around him at all. I was pretty distant. We, you know, we weren't exchanged, but we weren't close at all. Yeah. And getting him to know him as an adult and, and working with him in the same company and writing with him was a real gift. Uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people get that, to re-engage with their parents as an adult with a lot of space in between. And so a lot of the dynamics were gone. Not all of them, of course, but a lot of them. Sure. And then working at Scrum Inc., which back then was really small, was remarkable. It was just, you know, this really incredible team of people. And we were trying to, um, I'm quite honestly trying to change the world because work sucks and it doesn't have to. I mean, you look at the polls and it's like Gallup's like, oh, you know, 30% engagement in the United States. So that means like 30% of people are psyched to go to work. That sucks. That's not a great way to live. 13%
2: 13% of people have what Gallup calls great jobs and that's just in the US only 4% in the world which are the definition of a great job doesn't even actually sound that great so
0: yeah <laughs> and a lot of the reason that is I think this is my opinion is the way we work just like at Red River Army Depot that we work in ways that get in our way and we are unable to get things done and is crippling. I mean after the book came out in 2014 the first book once a year or so I'll have somebody come up to me and say this book saved my life. And then you know like what do you say when someone says that? Like you are welcome or there's like an awkward hug or something you know <laughs> it's kind of I go for the side and, hug. Yeah. yeah, side hug. When it, it sort of the real purpose is, is letting is setting human potential free from the restrictions that are self-imposed. And to point out that the way we're working traditional organizations isn't a law of nature. We made it up, which means we can make something else up to replace it. And the best thing I've stumbled across so far is Scrum. So it's, uh, you know, it's taken the technology sector completely by storm. Mm. You know, all of the, you know, Google, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Dropbox, they all use Scrum of one sort or another. And the other thing allowed them to do is to move fast and to react to change easily. That, is, I think, critical. And I think what has been happening over the last, it's happening longer than the last 20 years, but certainly over the last 20 years, is that the rate of technological change has accelerated so greatly that people can't even perceive the rate of the rate of change. And it's completely upended whole industries. There are, you know, sort of two things you can do with that kind of thing. Either you can double down on what you're doing and get beat, or you can say, I want to be able to embrace change, have that kind of change, be not a bad thing, but be a good thing. That kind of change, making my organization better in that rapid change, and because it's changing so fast, I mean, as we've learned in the past few months, things can change rapidly. Your organization and you and your team need to figure out how to react as well. I mean, I know in every corporate boardroom in, in America in January, there are all these you know annual plans, with lots of PowerPoint slides. They got tossed out the window three months later. Mm-hmm. If you- and I wonder how many of those people refused to change their plans because they like those good plan. They love their plan.
2: What you're talking about reminds me of something that, and I can't remember which book I read it in. And actually, now that I think about it, I'm not totally sure whether you said it or your dad said it or some combination of both. <laughs> However, it was something to the effect of describing Scrum as a new way to organize human endeavor. Right. And that stood out to me because I think I have a friend that it's always stuck in my mind since she said this, but she said something to the effect of, hey, the the old way of working has a tendency to go against the human spirit. Mm -hmm. And that's stuck with me ever since. And I think that what you're talking about, and especially, you know, that that statement, a new way to organize human endeavor, really fits with that. This everything that I know or have ever used that's in relation to Scrum fits really, really well, or at least much, much, much better with how humans function well. And even where we get you know, meaning and purpose and a number of other things along those lines too, it jives, jives well for those pieces too. So really, really like that new way to organize human endeavor. But I'm curious, coming from the background that you did and then moving into the Scrum organization... What were some of the ways, I guess I should say, that, uh, that you looked at this differently than what it was originally
0: created for? So, we, we, it came out of the software business. Yeah. I've, last time I coded software was probably 1990, and it was more like a hell, hello world kind of thing. Uh-huh. And so, I looked at it and I was like, you know, I use this in the Arab Spring. It seems, you know, I've used it in writing a book. I wrote a book with it. And so what I've been doing over the past, I don't know, eight or nine years has been going into new places and saying, this is not a technology framework. It's a universal framework that anyone can use to do anything. And boy, do we need people to do stuff these days. And the kind of work that we do is mostly mental and it's you know, sort of imaginary in a certain sense, a lot of the people we work, we we just make things up, right? Mm-hmm. That's what I do for a living. Yep. I kept on saying, "Well, let's let's see, you know, oh, someone used it to build a fighter plane in Sweden. Let's go talk to them. Oh, you know, I'm someone call me up from one of the private space companies. They're building rockets. Let's go check that out. Uh, or banks, or airlines, or oil and gas and energy and automotive and all sorts of places and the military, all sorts of places. And what I think it does. Is it gets into as you were saying how people are because it's not like Sui Generous. This way of working has actually been invented time and time again. Yeah, and but we just forget. Like I was doing some research the other day into the Apollo program, how that worked. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at the uh, there are these um, oral histories on the NASA site, and this guy named George Mueller was the head of manned space flight in the 1960s. And as soon as he got the job in the early 60s, he cut his management team from 15 to four. And then he empowered all the, the teams at the different NASA centers. And I think there are four of them across the country. He had them make the decisions. He only made the decisions that he needed to make. And that coordinated like, I don't know, 300,000 people and 20,000 companies, some, you know, something up, you know, absurdly large. And they put someone on the moon and brought them back. And when he was doing that, the way he was working in the oral histories, people were going, it, it was reckless. You know, this never could work. It's crazy. We're not following the rules. We, you know, these time-tested ways of working, this is just crazy. And so, George retires in the early 70s after, you know, the lunar program, and everything goes back to where the way it was before, hmm. because all the silos came back. And I think that's because, again, this is my, theory, my working theory right now, the rules bite back. And so you actually have to change the system and change what people are incented to do and how they're promoted and how they're given raises and what they're valued for. And to do that, you fundamentally have to change the rule set. Otherwise, if you have you know the same rules, but you're just operating, you know, have a charismatic brilliant leader, you know, operating in this, you know, crazy way, and well, as long as that person is there, they can pull it off. But as soon as that person leaves, it disappears. System reverts. Yep. So I think what Scrum is, is how do we take all the research on human productivity? You know, what makes humans tick? How do we like to be? All the research in, you know, in business and all this, you know, all this, it's based on decades of you know, research, going back to World War I, and put it together in a framework that's as lightweight as possible, but at least it's a different rule set. And if we can insert that rule set deeply into organizations, we can fundamentally change them forever.
2: You know, one thing that I've often wondered too not not necessarily just in relation to Scrum, but in relation to how we have a tendency to work as human beings, I think part of it is systemic, like you're talking about. You know, <laughs> The one person that's doing it differently leaves and the system reverts. One of my favorite things about the ideas behind Scrum is it, it has continual prioritization built into the mm-hmm. process. One of my favorite things. And what I've seen, not just in not just in scrum, but in many other areas is if that continual prioritization stops in any way whatsoever, then that's where we have a tendency to implement all kinds of things that are not useful or less valuable. And that's where yeah. you know all those rules and other things that have, <laughs> have a tendency to creep in because we feel like if we make all these rules or we feel like if we add these other things, it's going to be easier when really in reality, the continual prioritization is part of what makes it work so having the having the processes or systems or the wherewithal or the people you know continuously prioritizing is is part of what keeps that on track and if that part disappears then it seems like we as humans have a tendency to create things that we think are going to be easier but are really not that's that's yeah. totally half-baked thoughts that are
0: just no no that's exactly... it's actually worse than you think <laughs> tell me tell me more so usually when scrumic we go into an organization we yeah. look at it and there's some good data on this from the standish group which is a project research company usually about and this is comes from the software industry so i know this is true in the software industry uh-huh. i have good data on it but i'm pretty sure it's true everywhere else as well about 25% of people are making things that the customers actually value, features that they're going to use. Mm -hmm. And about 40 some odd percent are working on things that people will rarely or never use. Like you can write computer code and compile it within Microsoft Word. Why? Which (laughs) is... No, I'm and, sure and so, one of
2: their most used features, no doubt, I'm being completely sarcastic.
0: <laughs> um, or, and then about 25%, 30% of the people are doing things that not only no one wants, but no one knows about mm-hmm. and are actually against the goals of the organization. We call, I'll often call it dark work. And the, one of the things that Scrum does, and so think about that, you know, 75% of your, the effort of your people is total waste. What's great about that is just a little bit of a change is dramatic. But you know, like one company we were in, one of the 3M divisions we worked in at Scrum, they they actually we started with that ruthless prioritization at the top with the CEO of this division, and she did. And then we've started rolling out Scrum down. And one of the things that Scrum does is it makes the work visible. That makes what everyone is doing visible, and you can say is this in alignment with the organizational priorities? And we found this group of teams, I don't know, three or four teams, that. Had were working on something for the past two years where the market window had passed like 18 months. Ago. And they didn't know that. The CEO thought they'd stopped. Think about that. You know, about 20 people just working on nothing of value. And that happens more than you think. It's crazy. I mean, it's totally crazy. It's
2: it's absurd, and yet it still does happen. I also can't tell you the number of people that I have conversations with that email me. To this day that are describing that type of situation, and that is part of how they find us that happened to your career and begin looking because their role or their what they're doing in the organization, they can tell is not valuable mm-hmm. And it's certainly not challenging them in ways that they want <laughs> to be challenged.. Right. And so therefore, they're not having a great time either, and they're lacking and craving something that's much more purposeful and fulfilling. So it is very terrible for the organization itself, but it's even more terrible in some ways for the people who are involved in it because they can they know, yeah. they know and they feel like they're wasting their time in many different ways.
0: Yeah, they totally do. And these are very talented people often. And again, it's not bad people. It's bad systems. Mm-hmm. Do you know the fundamental attribution error? Yes, Which is one of my favorite things where, you know, we talk about ourselves. It's, you know, we say what the forces are that act upon us. We talk about somebody else. We talk about their internal failings. And I think that's what it is. And the thing that people need to change the way they view the world is that everyone is a prisoner of the forces that act upon them. Everyone. And so how do we change what the forces are? And for an individual, I mean, the Scrum is really like this big bank. One of the really, really big European banks called me up a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I said, why are you calling me? You have all the money, like all the money, like trillions of dollars. And they said, because no one wants to work for us because, you know, centuries old banks and the way we work, all the talent wants to go elsewhere. They want to go to these startups because it's more fun. Interesting. And if, you know, the war for talent is very real and especially in, you know, if you're doing something technical, you got to keep those people happy. (laughs) Otherwise they'll walk out the door.
2: Yeah, we see we see a lot of evidence of that. We're kind of in a unique position because we're really fortunate to have all the folks that are listening to this right now. They are what I would say is some of the world's top talent. And many times, I get emails, and then we get my team and I get on conversations with people and get the opportunity to learn what is what is not working, why they're considering leaving, and even though in many ways they have what nearly everybody else would call Point from the outside looking in and say, you know, these really great jobs are amazing opportunities, and yet they're still considering leaving or have even overstayed longer than they felt that they should for a variety of different reasons. But that said, Mm -hmm. that war on talent that you're talking about, or that keeping people happy, I think has has layers to it, and there's a surface level stuff like we were mentioning as it relates to doing work where our, our human tendency is to point to hey how do we get a rule to make this more simplified or you know how do we make the compensation better how do we focus on and where we have a tendency to focus on the wrong thing so here's where i'm going with uh, with my question my question to you is as i was reading through some of the books it occurred to me that there's got to be a profound impact on working differently, as it relates to keeping talent too. And I'm curious, what are some of the what some of the observations that you've seen there? Because I don't think that's probably the reason most organizations are coming to you. I'm guessing they're more interested in in many different ways. Although, please correct me if I'm wrong. But uh, you know, bottom line related, productivity related, a number of others. How can we? Mm-hmm. But what are some of the impacts that you see? I'm just super curious.
0: Well, one of the things that, you know, at Scrum Inc, we really stress this is that happiness is important because we know this. Happy teams, not only are you a better person if you have happy teams in your organization, but they do more stuff, higher quality and are psyched to come to work. You know, I'm not really a kumbaya kind of guy, but happiness is one of the best predictors of quality. Of productivity. Cause think about it. We all know this. Like, you know, optimistic salespeople are way better than pessimistic salespeople. Sure. We know, like, if you come into work and you're tired or you're angry or you're afraid, you literally cannot think about certain things. You can't think because so much of your brain is taken up with that stuff. But if you come in and you're happy, the world's your oyster. You can actually think better. That is one of the things. So we sell it to management by saying, Hey, you're going to get more stuff, which they do. And we sell it to the people saying your lives are going to be better. Which they are, and that combination because you know, happiness is happiness is really important. And people are, you go to Google Scholar and Google happiness, and there's like thousands and thousands of papers on this, mm-hmm. and they're all all say the same thing: working with individuals, working with teams, and working with organizations. We want them to be healthy. We want them to be happy. They want them to be great places to work. You know, one of the places you walk in, you can just sort of feel the energy, and you know, everything, everybody's popping and. Uh, feels really good. People are psyched to be there. That's what you want in any organization. That's usually the customers who come to Scrum. They're looking for that and you know more stuff. Twice the work, half the time. <laughs> you know the title of our first book, and it's really not that hard to do. It's basically stopping doing stupid stuff. You know, it, it's one of the like you have to prioritize. Everyone knows we have to prioritize. Everyone says, "Oh yeah," but then they have ten top priorities, which means they don't have priorities which means that the most junior person in their company is deciding their strategy because they get to pick on what to work on. So you have that. And also people's lives are better. Work doesn't have to suck. And with the sort of unleashing this human potential, that's incredibly rewarding to me. And that's why I'm doing this. And it's out of a sense of, we started this conversation, it's out of a sense of obligation.
2: Interestingly enough, we've circled all the way back, which is fascinating on many different levels to me. But I, I think it, this also leads to another question from what you've seen in your entire journey and what you know about the idea and concepts and learnings behind Scrum today. I'm really curious where people can use some of these concepts and learnings within their own career too, not just for their organization, not just for doing a different kind of work. Although we certainly have some compelling arguments here that that will help them too, but just thinking about it from a career and personal life type perspective, what do you think are some of the learnings that you can share with somebody who wants to prioritize better or wants to be able to benefit from some of these?
0: Right. Well, the the first thing you have to do is make your work visible. Our work is all imaginary. Mm -hmm. So we have to rip it out of the imaginary into the real. So just put it on Post-its and put it on the wall. And then you can actually prioritize just by moving Post-its around. And then focus on one thing, getting that top one done, totally and completely done, and then move on to the next. It's really simple. People have a hard time doing it. I have a hard time doing it. That's the key. And then also, on a regular cadence, sit down and reflect. How could I... I mean, I was working on all this stuff. I was trying to get this stuff done, whether it's, you know, I, I'm looking at my scrum board right now. There's a, you know, a door I have to fix upstairs. I got to write an article about mega projects. You know, it's like all sorts of stuff I have to do, but it's all up there. But every, you know... Week, I sit down and I sit down with my team and I sit down with myself and say, how can I make that work better? How can I make it easier? How can I make myself more happy doing this? And what small change could I what experiment could I try to see if it does change? And just doing that, and you would be very surprised. A little bit of change. You don't have to do this massive life upheaval thing, but at a little bit of change all the time, all of a sudden you can get some places you never thought you could get to.
2: Absolutely love it. And I think that that's a great note for us to end on because I think that that transfers to so many different areas. For people that want to learn more, more about Scrum, more about you, more about your organization, where would you recommend that they go? What can they do?
0: I just published a book, a new book called The Scrum Field Book. Mm -hmm. In that book, I go through a lot of patterns and how this actually works and where's and case studies and you know, how to do it. The first book wrote Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time is, you know, it's been a bestseller for a while and that's the place most people start. And if you want to come, you know, visit Scrum Inc, you can go to scruminc.com and we have tons of stuff on our website, you know, papers and blogs and articles and videos and all sorts of stuff. So you can check that out. And if you want, you know, just connect with me on LinkedIn. I You know, I love hearing about people's journeys in in the Agile world. I'll do it. And JJ Sutherland, CEO of Scrum Inc. It's not that hard to find me.
2: It pops up right away in a quick Google search. I tried it. <laughs> hey, thank you so very much. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time and making the time and coming and sharing and uh, allowing me to dig into some of your, your past and your stories too. This has been a ton of fun for me and I just really appreciate it.
0: Well, thank you so much. It was, really, it was a really good time. It was really interesting to talk about all of that and connected.
2: If this is not your first episode of the Happened to Your Career podcast, you've probably heard somebody on here that their first step to work that they absolutely love, that fits their strengths and they're excited about, was going through our free eight-day mini course to figure out what fits you. And we've had now well over 30,000 people have that as their beginning step to identifying what they want in their lives. And you can do the exact same thing. And if you're interested in that, it asks some really amazing questions to get you started in becoming clear on what you want and what you need in your career. And it's a great way to kick it off and determine what is most important for you moving forward. You can learn what you're great at so you can stop wasting time in your job and start working in your career. Uh, Even identify some of the internal blockages that are keeping you from fulfilling work and wealth and career success. And begin narrowing down what you should be doing for work that's fulfilling to you. All you have to do is go to figureitout.co, that's figureitout.co, and get started today. Enter your email, and voila, we'll send you the very first lesson. Head on over there, figureitout.co. Or you can text HAPPEN to 44222. That's H A P P E N. 44222.